Thanks so much for joining us for the SWARP webinar and podcast series. Just wanted to start with a disclaimer that this subject matter may be upsetting or distressing to some listeners, so please keep this in mind prior to listening and viewing. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us today for the latest edition of the SWARP podcast. I'm Dr. Lauren Valdis, Medical Director of Education here at SWARP, and I have here joining with me Dr. Brett Plouffe. He's in his final month of his Pediatric Emergency Fellowship before he moves on to work in Halifax. Welcome so much, Dr. Plouffe. Thank you, Dr. Valdis. I'm really excited to be here and looking forward to being able to share some of my knowledge with the SWARP as well as the paramedics of Southwestern Ontario. Awesome. And Dr. Plouffe, as a pediatric emergency medicine physician, you thought the topic of pediatric trauma would be of high educational value, and that was after you completed your EMS rotation with us this past year. Brett, tell us why you chose to touch on this topic. Yeah. So while it might not be the most common presentation when you're picking up a pediatric patient, it's obviously an area in emergency medicine where there's a lot of high stress. And as an emergency medicine physician, I personally have a special interest in trauma management. Really, it's fascinating that the first couple hours in managing these patients can just be so impactful to their overall course and how they end up recovering while in hospital. And Dr. Plouffe, you can really shed some light on this. What is the difference between adult and pediatric trauma? Yeah, so there's lots of different reasons. Firstly, pediatric trauma, as anyone who has been in the eMERGE knows, is much less frequently seen. They have different injury patterns due to their different anatomy and physiology. And then the interactions that we have with pediatric patients are much different than you'd see in adults. They have challenges with communicating, telling us what hurts or what's wrong, and their reactions and responses to those stressful situations can be very different from what some of us are used to. All right, Dr. Plouffe, it sounds like you just outlined a few of the things we'll be talking about today. We're really lucky to have you join us today and talk about this topic and drop some clinical pearls for our listeners. Why don't you first tell us about that first part there, that frequency of pediatric trauma and how it's different from the adult population? Yeah, Dr. Valdis. So even here in London, where we're the regional trauma center for southwestern Ontario, pediatric polytrauma is seen somewhat uncommonly. Although since we've been keeping better records over the last few years, the numbers are increasing. So for 2021-22, we had about 150 pediatric traumas that ended up at LHSC Children's Hospital. But of those, only about 57 of them came directly to our hospital with the others coming from peripheral centers where they were first seen by emergency physicians. So essentially, that's about one a week locally that we would see here within London. Through 2022 and 23, so far, this data set ended in the fall. So a few months back, uh, the numbers were 90 total with 31 happening locally, which puts us projected to be somewhere in the 150 to 180 total range for that entire year. Gotcha. So those are pretty much the same numbers that we're seeing, maybe just slowly trickling up then, it sounds like. However, definitely a much lower number than we see in the adult side in the emergency room. From this, what do you think that paramedics should take away? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And at the end of the day, while the fundamentals of trauma management between these patient groups are fairly similar, the lower numbers means that paramedic team, an individual paramedic, 
may have large gaps in between seeing young patients. So ultimately, it involves a lot of reviewing and refreshing some of the differences and some of the important considerations with pediatric patients so that when you do end up seeing one or going out on a call that involves a pediatric patient, that shift in mentality to dealing with some of those differences just becomes second nature. All right. Well, that opens up perfectly into the second part then about what's different with pediatrics versus adult trauma. Dr. Plouffe, why don't you tell us about the difference between adult and pediatric anatomy and physiology? Yeah, of course. So as we always like to say, children are not just little adults. So a couple of the really important highlights and kind of the first one that comes to mind is the distribution of injuries that we see in children and how that's really relating to their different anatomy. And a really great way of mentally picturing this is if you think of our classic cartoon character, Charlie Brown. While Charlie Brown is probably not the most anatomically accurate person as a whole, this is really analogous to what we see in younger children. So they have large heads proportional to their body, often very little neck, and then the chest and abdomen are very close together. So you see a broader distribution of injuries across the body rather than potentially more isolated injuries to what you might see in an adult who's much taller. So in practice, when you're called to a pediatric trauma, you're seeing a higher ratio of head injuries and then the thorax and abdomen being kind of a close second and third. And when you think about it in practice, you know, the classic, let's say, MBC or car versus pedestrian, when you compare a four-year-old, let's say, to a standing adult, their body will be lower, so they will make contact with the chest, head, abdomen Whereas an adult, the initial point of contact might be the lower leg, the pelvis, often sparing the head and the upper torso from the initial injury. All right. Well, I just love that analogy. We'll have to make sure we put a picture up of Charlie Brown somewhere on the podcast page just to really cement that uh, image for you. So what you're saying, Dr. Plouffe, then, is to be on the lookout for head injuries, uh, especially in pediatric blunt trauma, as well as chest and abdominal injuries. Yeah, so really just important to make sure that you look under that clothing, really do a thorough head-to-toe quick assessment because just knowing where that initial point of contact was, that it could be distributed over a much larger area than in an adult in a similar situation. And besides the fact that kids look like Charlie Brown with that huge head, no neck, and your abdomen and your thorax really close together, is there anything else beyond why kids might have different uh, distribution of injuries rather than the older adult patients? Yeah, that's a great pickup there. And while obviously the anatomy is one big factor, there are quite a few other physiologic differences that play into approaching trauma differently in children. Firstly, they have thinner skin and less subcutaneous fat than an adult and a larger relative surface area. So this can lead to much quicker heat loss, especially when children are exposed and outside. Um, they have uh, more pliable and less calcified bones, um, not only in their extremities, but the chest and ribs and thorax as well. And the abdomen has less intra-abdominal fat, which in adults or older individuals can cushion the internal organs through trauma. All of this together leads to higher risks of injury to internal organs and a slightly different pattern in terms of the types of bony injuries you may see compared to adults. All right, that's a lot of great info in there, Dr. Plouffe. Can we break that down one by one? Maybe we'll start with what does that rapid heat loss have to do with trauma? Yeah, so we know that when trauma patients 
lose body temperature or start to become cooler, it starts really a vicious cycle that leads to changes in the body's ability to clot and stabilize clots that are formed. On top of that, the cooler somebody is, the higher their metabolic demands will be, which can put even more stress on an already unwell and sick patient. All right. So this is bringing into mind that trauma triad of death. What is that again? Yeah, so hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy, all things that we want to avoid, if at all possible. Gotcha. And that triad works. So if you become hypothermic, you can become acidotic, and then also you increase your coagulopathy, which then creates a spiral as all three things work together. So that increases morbidity and mortality. So the triad of death certainly pertains to adult patients as well as pediatric patients. And it sounds like in peds, it can come on even quicker because of the relative larger surface area and less sub-Q fat. Yeah, absolutely. So extremely important to keep these kids warm. Obviously, the younger, the even more important. So quick exposure, look for those injuries that we talked about before, but keep that environment nice and warm. Keep the blanket, keep a bear hugger, keep something that's going to keep them warm after that. In our pediatric trauma room, often that's something that people notice right away is that when you walk into our resuscitation room, it's about four or five degrees warmer than the surrounding department, specifically for that reason. Gotcha. And sometimes we just don't have the ability to have that nice warm back of the ambulance, but blankets, anything you have to keep the, the pediatric patient warm. And just like Dr. Plouffe said, it's, it's a balance of looking, making sure you're looking for those injuries, but also then covering them up. So Dr. Plouffe, let's talk about the pliability of pediatric patients again. How does this affect the pediatric trauma? Yeah, so things that are pliable are going to bend under stress and provide not as much cushioning or as much of a shield for what is behind it. And this goes as well to the less fat, particularly the subcutaneous or the intra-abdominal fat, which when you add that to the bones being more pliable, equals a lot less shielding for those intra-abdominal and intrathoracic organs. Gotcha. So internally, there might be some pretty severe damage, but because of this pliability, it may not be as apparent. So in the adult population, you might feel some of those broken ribs or really be able to feel exactly where the injury was. But in kids, that may not be totally so. Is there an example you could give us of that? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we see in, in children are thoracic or chest injuries in the form of pulmonary contusions, whereas an adult would have broken ribs, which may take some of the impact away from the actual lung tissue. In children, they get essentially bruises of the lungs, which are pulmonary contusions. These don't often show up immediately uh, after the trauma, depending on the severity, but often after arriving to hospital or later on in the course, they have an increase in their overall oxygen requirements, some respiratory distress or worsening respiratory symptoms because those bruises make it more difficult for the lungs to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide and function as they, as they should be. All right, so those pulmonary contusions. And, you know, remember that you as crews may be transporting a pediatric trauma patient after their initial assessment to a trauma center 
or maybe if there's a delayed presentation to their 911 call, or of course, in some of our more rural areas, some of the long transport times. Dr. Plouffe, are there any other pearls that you have or any personal experiences you've had with pulmonary contusions? Any pearls you want to pass along to our paramedics? Yeah. So, I mean, keep to the basic principles, supplemental oxygen, starting with the least invasive, working your way to the most invasive. All of our trauma patients, as long as equipment is working, are going to have, you know, uh, vital sign monitoring, including oxygen saturation. And keeping a close eye on this, because even small changes or decreases in the oxygen saturation in a pediatric trauma patient could be indicative that there's a respiratory decompensation in the near future. All right, pearls on pearls on pearls. So we are exposing our children. We're then keeping them warm. We're keeping a close eye on them. If we have any sort of signs of that pulmonary contusion, which may not have been as apparent because of those rib fractures that you'd see in an adult, then you're going to use, just like Dr. Plouffe said, that least invasive to most invasive method just help support some of their oxygenation. And talking about other vital signs there, Dr. Plouffe, are there any other particular differences that you want to highlight with regards to the pediatric trauma patient? Yeah, so the most important thing to talk about here is monitoring for hypotension and when we see patients become hypotensive in this age group. Firstly, obviously, we within pediatrics have to change our target values and our normal values based on the age. But often the question that comes up is, when do we really worry? And kind of going through the easy ways to remember this, within the manuals, that 70 plus two times age for your lowest tolerable systolic blood pressure. Awesome. And yeah, that's right, Dr. Plouffe. So directly listed in the ALS-PCS under the vital signs is hypotension. So age-related for kids, 70 plus, two times the age. And Dr. Plouffe, why is this number used and why is that important? Yeah. So the key for this measurement is that this is the fifth percentile for the age-related blood pressure or a close approximation of that. So if you have a patient who has a systolic blood pressure of 70 plus two times their age, it's something to make note of that this is the very low end of what we would tolerate. And to truly have your alarm bells ready in the case that this pressure drops any lower. Dr. Valdes, in in an adult emergency patient, what is the earliest sign of hemodynamic instability that you see? All right. Well, often we see tachycardia first, followed by hypotension. When we see hypotension, we get scared, but not the same in the peds world. Tell us about hypotension in peds. Yeah, exactly. So having recently had some opportunity to see some more adult patients, both through the eMERGE and EMS, I remember that those really low, unstable trauma patients having blood pressures. And in contrast to the pediatric patient, we see the low blood pressure and hypotension as a much later finding because their blood vessels and their heart rate have such a more robust compensation when compared to some older adults. Essentially, what this causes is up to a 30% blood volume loss before children start to show signs of hypotension. So they will often just have that rebound tachycardia for a prolonged period of time before their blood pressure starts to actually drop. Essentially, if you start to see lower blood pressures in a trauma patient who has a source of bleeding, you are likely at least one third of their blood volume has been depleted at that point in time. So that's kind of terrifying, actually. So those sort of signs you're looking for are typical on the adult side or trying to tell you this kid is, you know, kind of circling the, the drain already with a third of their blood 
gone. So by the time that a patient is hypotensive, they're kind of peri-arrest. With this information, do you have any pearls for the paramedics listening today? There are certainly some things that can be done to be proactive about this. Certainly initial early IV access can be helpful if you do need to volume resuscitate a patient. We see it every day that obviously inserting IVs in pediatric patients can be a challenging task. And obviously if the patient is extremely unwell, hypotensive peri-arrest, this adds a whole other layer of difficulty that we would like to avoid if at all possible. So in the pediatric trauma patient, it's definitely safe to err on the side of early IV access in these patients. And within the scope of the practitioner, having a threshold and a comfort with using things like intraosseous devices in pediatric patients can potentially save you if they do start to have some hemodynamic instability and become unstable. This also highlights the importance of what we like to call damage control resuscitation, which is basically a a fancy term for doing whatever you can to stop the bleeding uh, and fill up the tank temporarily uh, if, if we can't. Gotcha. And so that damage control resuscitation is this really fancy term, sounds really cool. Can you tell us about what that means practically? Yeah. So in terms of actually stopping the bleeding, there's a few different commercial tools uh, that are available and some ones that we can improvise as well if those are not around. These are things like tourniquets, pelvic binders. And sometimes the question comes up, can we use these on children? You know, do they fit? Do we recommend using them? And in fact, you know, we're finding that these are a lot more readily available both in the community and within peripheral hospitals over the last few years. And there have been some robust studies done on using them in children, confirming their effectiveness. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, this is something that's been newer added to the BLS PCS. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of these studies, Dr. Plouffe? Are there limitations to these commercial devices? What should paramedics know? Yeah, so the large studies that have come out in the last few years actually support using the commercial combat tourniquets on children really above the age of six with excellent success. They are found to have very close to 100% pulseless rate in upper extremity injuries and about 90% in lower extremities. The fascinating part actually about some of the studies is that they compared the combat tourniquet to tubing and clamps and other makeshift devices to basically create a tourniquet. And there was actually acceptable hemostasis and bleeding control, even with some of the improvised methods, which overall controlling the bleeding, however possible, is going to be beneficial. In terms of limitations on children, be similar to what you would see with adults. Patients at the extreme end of size, both height or weight, may have trouble fitting standard size devices. And on top of that, the usual advice we'd have in an adult patient that if the bleeding is not controlled, add a second tourniquet on is also applicable in our pediatric patients to get a little bit of extra squeeze. And there's another pearl. So if one isn't working, you suggest adding a second tourniquet? Yeah, yeah. So you can add a second tourniquet on to the the patient in the affected area, just not directly on top of it, obviously, but you can do it just proximal to the previous one that was applied. And what if that's not possible? What if you're as close as you can? What do you do? So in that case, Putting another tourniquet on the leg, even distal to the previously applied tourniquet, may get you some direct benefit. 
really the goal at the end of the day is to just get an extra squeeze on that particular extremity to try and stop some of the bleeding. That's awesome. Thanks so much for clarifying. So that's pearls on pearls on pearls on pearls. So let's recap some of those anatomic and physiologic changes to consider in the pediatric trauma patient. So the first thing is, is that higher risk of heat loss and hypothermia, which as we discussed, can worsen bleeding and is part of that trauma triad of death. However, with that, remember that exposure and looking for those less obvious injuries in this population is super important. Their pliable soft bones mean the internal damage may be more hidden. In particular, we touched on the respiratory deterioration that can occur a little bit later than expected because of that hidden pulmonary contusion. And as Dr. Plouffe has reminded us, stick to your basics in management of this with your oxygenation. And then lastly, we talked about how hypotension is the harbinger of badness in kids. They compensate until they don't. Try to obtain IV access prior to hypotension in order to be able to act quickly when it is to occur. Because remember, you still want to follow your ALS-PCS management and the IV fluid bolus is not indicated in these pediatric patients without, of course, a medical directive online order until they become hypotensive. But you don't want to be starting that IV when they're right at the edge of that cliff there. And Dr. Plouffe gave us some great intel on how to treat the hemorrhage, so stop the bleeding and the hypotension with those pearls on tourniquet placement, not just for adults, for kids. If one's not working, add a second. Yeah, and the same really goes for pelvic binders as well, using them if you have a commercial one, just like you would in an adult, and a blanket and clamps can suffice temporarily if you do not have one available. Awesome. And that's an incredible amount of information that we've packed in already. But there's another really big difference that we highlighted at the beginning that we want to touch on again between pediatric and adult patients. Well, most adult patients anyways. So these are kids. They react, respond, and communicate differently than adults. Dr. Plouffe, tell us more. Share your pediatric expertise. Yes, Dr. Valdez. So I think the best way to walk through this part is to frame based on a case I had early in my second year of fellowship. So we have a hypothetical patient named Timmy, and Timmy's a three-year-old boy. Timmy is the sixth son and 11th child of a farming family about 20 minutes outside of London. And it's the harvest season and Timmy wants to get out on the farm with his dad. So they head out on the tractor early in the morning. Dad has to get off the tractor to unhitch something, open a gate. So he steps off the tractor but forgets that it is in gear. Timmy, wanting to help his dad, tries to follow him off of the tractor, falls to the ground, and then that tractor unfortunately rolls over Timmy. Dad hears the yelling, he stops the tractor, gets it off of Timmy, and then calls 911 and EMS is dispatched. And while this sounds quite horrible, unfortunately, a somewhat uncommon but common occurrence in our catchment area. Gotcha. And to be honest, I mean, pediatric trauma just your stomach sinks when you hear just that story. I mean, that's why we're talking about it today because we are here to help people when they need us the most. And it sounds like Timmy certainly needs us right now. So let's go on and talk about how we can help the most in these situations. EMS is on their way. What do they find when they get to the farmyard? 
Yeah, so when they arrive, they find a hysterical family. There are three young girls running around crying in the front yard with the mother sobbing, trying to console them. The dad rushes you behind the house and you follow your typical on-scene protocol and arrive at Timmy laying in the barnyard. You see a clear bleeding injury to the left lower leg as well as the right upper thigh. He's extremely uncomfortable, yelling, thrashing, his arms around while kind of being held down on the ground by his brother. And that's something really important you bring up there, Dr. Plouffe. While stressful situations like this are really tough for a person of any age, kids deal with stress differently from adults, don't they? Exactly, Dr. Valdis. Especially under school-age children, there can be a huge barrier in them understanding the severity and what is happening in this type of a situation. It essentially can overload them with stress and anxiety. And in someone who already has a challenging time communicating what is going on in their head, this can push them far beyond the ability to communicate effectively, even with loved ones and parents. Um, So there's a few things that can be valuable in this situation while not actually taking much away in terms of overall patient care. And the biggest one of these would be to really engage the parents if they are amenable to being involved. Really, parents know their child best. And even in these high-stress, high-anxiety situations, really do want what is best for their child. And they may have varying reactions, but you may find they actually can be somewhat helpful in decreasing the anxiety in the child and allowing you to interact and and do things with them that may cause a significant fight or flight type response. You know, even looking into the more hospital-based trauma literature, we've got very good evidence that keeping the families as involved as possible in the resuscitation room can have long-term benefits both in patient care as well as the long-term psychosocial dynamics of recovery and what happens after the patient is stabilized from their injuries. Awesome. Another great pearl there. So involving the parents to help with the children with communication, as well as it sounds like it can actually help the the parents to be involved as well. So that's great, Dr. Plouffe. Why don't we catch up with Timmy and see how he's doing now? Yeah, so involving the dad in this case actually was able to help calm Timmy down. The team was able to perform their initial assessment. He had a GCS of 13. He was tachycardic with a heart rate at 155, blood pressure of 94 on 60, oxygen was 93% on room air, and he had a respirate of 28 and a temperature of 36.4 degrees. There were significant abrasions on the chest and abdomen, a large open wound in the right inguinal region, and almost complete degloving of his left leg from the knee down. On top of that, the wounds were packed full of dirt from the barnyard and tractor tires. So clearly very, very significant injuries in this case. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty sick patient. I mean, even though he's still not hypotensive, still pretty tacky. I mean, just the description there. He's, like you said, some pretty significant injuries. What happened next? Yeah, so Timmy was brought to LHSC Emerge after this. He Because of the severity of his injuries and the amount of bleeding, he was intubated when he arrived there. He received multiple units of blood from a transfusion perspective, was found to have some extremity fractures in that left tibia. There was a pelvic fracture, quite a significant pelvic injury with the open wound that exposed all the way around to the perineum. And because of all the 
the extent of this was actually brought directly from our resuscitation room right up to the operating room with a combined general surgery or trauma surgery and orthopedic surgery OR to stabilize the pelvis and repair some of the inguinal laceration and was eventually stably transported to our pediatric ICU where he recovered and after about six to eight weeks in hospital was actually discharged home just working on some physiotherapy and rehabilitation. Wow, so some pretty significant injuries as initially seen there on scene. Dr. Plouffe, any communication pearls that you'd like to highlight for our listeners there as an end to this little segment here? Yeah, I think the biggest thing to highlight is really involve the family. I know that some families will have different reactions. There may be hysterical parents, there may be stoic parents, but often they have really valuable insight into their child, both in terms of helping them get through a very difficult situation, but may also be able to give you some insight into other concerning features about you know, level of consciousness, wakefulness, or things where they're communicating, but in an abnormal way for that child that you may not initially pick up on because you've never met this particular child before. Now, parents might initially feel that they might get in the way of paramedic assessment or care might interfere. Are there any sort of tips that you'd give to the paramedics to bring the parents in? I think the end of the day, this is about safety and about patient care. So as long as there's a way that they can have the patient and the parent together and involved, whether that's holding a hand, sometimes even in the trauma room, we'll let the parent hold like a foot just so that the child knows that they're present, but not directly in the way of, you know, supply or applying supplemental oxygen or putting in an IV or putting on monitors and doing an assessment. Um, It's just their presence and the ability to be there if needed both to answer questions and to help with their child that can help at the end of the day, just trying to sort of do some crowd control and keep them there, but not immediately in the line of what is being done on their child. Awesome. So inviting them in, letting them know how they can be helpful, what they can do, and maybe some places to stay away from if the paramedics are currently busy at a certain section of time. That's really helpful, Dr. Plouffe. Thank you so much. And Dr. Plouffe, this has been an extremely interesting, informative, and educational session. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before you leave us, can you do a quick rundown or summary of your pediatric trauma pearls for us? Absolutely. So first thing is that they are much less frequent. So keeping up the skills, keeping up the reading, keeping that recognition of the differences between pediatric patients and adult patients is extremely important. And then that kind of leads into point number two. When you think about those anatomical differences, those physiologic differences, um, remember how you would manage and account for those differences when you actually see them in practice. And remembering Lastly, some of those tips in terms of how to communicate, how to effectively and safely care for these patients uh, when you have uh, someone who doesn't fully understand the severity of what is happening, but is still extremely stressed and anxious um, and getting that parental aspect in there to help you kind of bridge the gap between yourself and the pediatric patient. All right, there you have it, folks. All of these fantastic pediatric pearls to tuck away from Dr. Plouffe. And so you've already kind of checkboxed that first point. So less frequent, so important to review these topics frequently. So you just did. So good job on that. And Dr. Plouffe, again, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your expertise and experience. Best of luck in your last month of training before moving out east to start your solo pediatric emergency medicine practice. 
Thanks, Dr. Valdez. It was uh, a lot of fun being here. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care.